I uh, actually don't really have anything more to say, so I'm just going to launch right into the message this morning. And there was much rejoicing, right? Uh, last week, we've been, you know, making our way through the Sermon on the Mount. I've, you know, tongue-in-cheek said, I'm just going to plagiarize Jesus here. It's Jesus' sermon, and I'm just going to be repeating chunks of it a little bit at a time. So last week, I, I repeated, uh, read you the portion of the sermon in which Jesus affirms that the Old Testament including all of its commandments, including all of the thou shalt's and all of the thou shalt nots, the Old Testament is still valid and it's still relevant to those who wish to follow the teachings of Jesus. Jesus says, I didn't come here to get rid of that. The word he uses is I didn't abolish all of that with my message about the kingdom of God. I came to fulfill the words of the prophets to fulfill the words of the law. The announcement of the kingdom of God is the fulfillment of all you have read and all you have heard God say. And so this week, as we move into just the very next paragraph of Jesus's teaching, what we're gonna hear is Jesus kind of unpack a very specific and particular example of how that works. He's going to take a specific example from the Old Testament law, and he's going to say, here's how my teaching about the kingdom of God fulfills, not abolishes, what you have read. And so let me just plagiarize Jesus today. Again, these words aren't going to be on the screen. I don't want us to read them. I want you to hear them as the audience on the mountainside that day might have heard them. I'm reading from Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. How many of us have ever been in church and heard the preacher preach a sermon where he says, if you don't do this, you're probably going to jail. That's a first for me. I got to tell you, this is different. But these are the words that Jesus uses. He's saying, hey, think about this real life application here. If you don't get this done the right way, you're going to be in a whole lot of trouble. Almost every culture that has ever existed has some sort of prohibition against murder. It's about the most universally accepted standard of morality that there is. We don't just kill people, right? 
So it makes sense that Jesus would use this as kind of his launching point example of, let's talk about the Old Testament law. Let's talk about the law and how it applies today. Let's start with an easy one that presumably everybody can agree with. We shouldn't be murdering each other. And everybody says, yeah, well, yeah that's probably the right way to go. That's probably, yeah, that makes sense. And Jesus says, so let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. The Old Testament, as everybody who heard Jesus that day would have known, the Old Testament tells us not to murder. Those famous 10 little commandments that we have in the book of Exodus, it clocks in at number six, if you're keeping score at home. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13 is the place where you find it. And it's a very, very short and simple verse. It says simply this, you shall not murder. No further explanation, no further delineation, nothing else needs to be said. If you're of the generation that learned it in the King James, you probably thought it said, thou shalt not murder, right? That's, that's how we remember those things. Thou shalt not murder. Uh, in the modern translations, it just says, you shall not murder. Not you shouldn't murder, or you won't murder, or it's a bad idea, or give it you know, careful cons- consideration. No, just you, you shall, you, sh- you sh- shan't. Should Jesus have said shan't? Y'all shan't murder. Whatever. You shall not murder. It's succinct. It's straightforward. Now, later on in the Old Testament, we do find rules about investigating murders. We do find, uh, you know, more nuanced definitions of what exactly constitutes a murder. We find guidelines for how we're going to prosecute the offenders. But even in these cases, the rules are pretty simple. They're pretty straightforward. This was not one of those commandments that the Pharisees had trouble understanding. Everybody got it. Don't kill anyone. There it is. There it is. There it is. But Jesus says, you know, we actually need to talk about that rule. Because remember, he hasn't come to abolish rules like that. He's come to fulfill rules like that. In other words, Jesus has come to show us how to apply even the simple rules, how we apply those things to life in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says it's going to require a broader, deeper understanding than maybe you realized before. And so let me repeat to you what I just read a moment ago, reading specifically from Matthew chapter 5, verse 22 now. Jesus says, but I tell you, you already heard it said, don't murder. Like you all know that, he said. But I tell you, here's, here's what my announcement is. Here's what the ethic of the kingdom of God that I came to announce says. I tell you, that anyone who is angry with a brother or a sister will be subject to judgment. And again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answer, I like that word. Is an- Maybe I shouldn't, maybe that's a problem. We'll, we'll get to that later. Anybody who says that is answerable to the court and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Anybody in our culture has heard the saying, sticks and stones will break my bones but words will never hurt me. And anybody who's ever been to kindergarten knows that that is not true. Words are very hurtful. Words are very harmful. And Jesus has a couple of doozies in these verses that we just read. Uh, When my kids were little, there was a word in our house that caused a great deal of strife. And the word was peaky. And I don't know where it came from, but I can tell you that many Martinson tears were shed through the years over who called whom a peaky. When I was a kid, I've told you this story before, I cried my eyes out because my cousin called me a PU duck. <laughs> if you don't know what a PU duck is, it's one of those black cats that has a white stripe down the middle of it and it smells real bad. 
That's a PU duck. We don't like to be called names. Jesus has a couple of interesting uh, names that he used here. Raka, Raka. Anybody ever called anybody Raka before? Okay, you probably don't want to as much as I've just said it like eight times because I really think it's a fun word. Uh, as best we can tell, Raka is an ancient Aramaic word that means someone with an empty head. It essentially is, is like calling somebody an airhead. So you're saying, if you call somebody an airhead, you're going to be in trouble. Next phrase, he says, if you say, you fool, anybody who says, you fool, uh, the, you fool, he actually uses a Greek word there, and the Greek word he uses is literally moron. In the Greek, he says, anybody who says moron will be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus has got some doozies in there. Three statements in the verse that you see on the screen before you. Three sentences right in a row. And we need to not worry about kind of delineating how sentence one is different from sentence two and how sentence two is different from sentence three. This is a classic way that, that the Hebrews taught. They would just say the same thing again and again in different ways, but it all means the same thing. The kingdom of heaven, of course, doesn't allow angry actions like murder, but it doesn't allow angry words or thoughts either. Angry words or angry thoughts that are directed at our brothers and sisters are not consistent with the ethic of the kingdom of heaven. They are, in their essence, exactly the same as murder. Violators will be subject to judgment. In essence, Jesus is saying, when it comes to murder, it's the thought that counts. You heard that phrase? Oh, it's the thought that counts. When we use the phrase, it's the thought that counts. Usually, we're kind of lowering the bar, aren't we? Well, it's the thought that counts. You get something that really isn't very nice or isn't very helpful from somebody who intended it to be nice or helpful, and you say, well, it's, it's the thought that counts. I remember the first time that I took a, a team of people from this congregation to a mission trip in Haiti. We were down in Haiti, um, visiting a, a village that was up on top of a mountain deep in, in, in the rural region. Tracy was there. We were up in McCary Village uh, on this one particular morning. And, and the team was, was going to be working with the villagers. And I think the school children that day had a bunch of activities planned and different things going on. And I had been asked, there was a group of pastors from area villages that had traveled to McCary on that morning. And I had been asked to meet with them and spend that day uh, doing some teaching with them. So our team was going to be kind of in one part of this little village, and I was going to be in the other part of this village doing, doing a class with these Haitian pastors. And on our way to McCary, uh, Maria Block, who was with us, said, you know, if it's all the same to you guys, I'd kind of like to go with Dan this morning. I'd like to be a part of the class too. And we had enough people to cover the other thing. And so as it turned out, Maria and I ended up in this cinder block building with, oh, I don't know, 15 or 20 different Haitian pastors who had come to the village of McCary that morning to hear uh, what I had to say. Um, one of the things that the villagers in McCary had told us in preparation for that particular morning is that they wanted to cook and serve us lunch. Now that's a little dangerous in Haiti. <laughs> and I can tell you, and the team members that have been in part of other teams, uh, we, we don't eat when we're out in the villages. We don't eat while we're out in the countryside. We, we eat in the restaurant at the hotel, and that's about it, because cleanliness uh, may be next to godliness, but it's not next to Port-au-Prince, I can tell you that. 
Uh, we, don't, we don't eat the, the food that we find on the streets. But our missionary host said, you know what, in this case, we're going to make an exception. We've worked a lot with this village. They know how to do things in a way that's not going to cause trouble for the American palate or the American digestive system. And so uh, we were told that they were going to grill chicken for us that day. And grilled chicken is about as neutral as it gets. And there was probably some rice and beans as well. The villagers were very excited about giving out of their lack. We want to welcome the Americans and, and we want to do this for them. And so I remember as lunchtime approached in that little room where I was doing my teaching, I could smell chicken on the grill. And it smelled good. It smelled good. Uh, as we got closer to lunch, though, I was told, oh, no, on the other side of town, that's where they're grilling the chicken, and your team is there, and they're eating the chicken. Here, we're having spaghetti for lunch. Now, spaghetti is, oddly, one of the Haitians' favorite foods. They love spaghetti. They eat it for breakfast fairly often. Uh, but they were serving spaghetti for us for lunch. And so Maria and I and these, these 20 pastors or so are in this room, and I gotta set the stage for you. There's a couple of problems already that I'm, I'm starting to worry about. One is that when I travel, I don't eat, okay? I don't eat. I don't have the best stomach for travel. And so I tend to just kind of take things very, very slowly and carefully when I'm out, okay? And here's the other thing. In the entire village of McCary, there is no plumbing whatsoever which means there is no bathroom in McCary. And so I'm gonna be twice as careful as I usually would be. And then here's the other thing. We're sitting in this cinder block room with a dirt floor and it's gotta be 105 degrees in there. I mean, it is just sweltering in this room. And right at the doorway, they have this huge pot on a fire with boiling spaghetti noodles. <laughs> And they start scooping it out, and who do you think gets the first two plates of spaghetti? Boiling hot spaghetti noodles right out of the water on that morning. Big heaping plate of it, and they bring it in, hand one to Maria and hand one to me. Now this is not spaghetti with marinara sauce. This is spaghetti with a few seasonings sprinkled over it, just plain spaghetti noodles, a couple shavings of onion and pepper, and then a couple of really tiny chunks of mystery meat that looked and smelled a whole lot like hot dog to me. And I don't do hot dogs, okay? They're an abomination from hell, I just need to say. So I'm really struggling with this. And I'm not done yet, because then over the top of the whole thing, there's a squirt of ketchup and a squirt of mayonnaise. I mentioned a minute ago that there's no plumbing in McCary. There's also no electricity, which means there's no refrigeration. So I don't even want to know where the mayonnaise came from. Okay, so they're handing this to me. We aren't sitting at tables. We're just kind of sitting in these little teeny tiny chairs that are circled up and, and the Haitian pastors have started eating theirs and they're just loving this. This is great. And they're talking and, and I'm sitting, Maria's on my left and I'm holding this thinking, dear Jesus, I love you so much, <laughs> but I'm not going to eat these people's spaghetti. I'm just not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And my translator is here on, on my right, and I'm kind of talking with him, and he is just jabbering on, having a grand old time talking, scooping the spaghetti up. And I'm periodically, I've been on the mission field before, church, tell me, I've eaten some crazy things on the mission field, but that day, not having, not having, not having it. Right? So I'm trying to find like little tiny noodles that are 
that are unadulterated by mayonnaise and ketchup and and like like how can I if I eat three of these noodles, can I get away with that and just say thank you very much? This is so good. Mm-hmm. You can if I, four. Like where is the line here? Where is the line of being polite? And as I'm sitting there, I'm thinking to myself, if I'm struggling with this, what's Maria doing? You know, poor teeny tiny little Maria on my left. And I've been talking with my translator the whole time, and so right about that point, I turn around to see how she's doing. She's got one bite of spaghetti left on her plate and a noodle hanging out of her mouth. She's like, man, this is good! But I was not having it that day, and, and, and by the time I was done, I, I kind of hit it and put it down somewhere, and, and I just told, oh, thank you, thank you, patience, so much, thank you. Merci en pile, merci en pile, thank you very much. It's the thought that counts, right? It's the thought that counts. When we say it's the thought that counts, we're saying the action wasn't actually that good. We're lowering the bar for what's acceptable. It's the thought that counts means you didn't actually do a very good job, and so I need to lower the bar. Jesus says when it comes to murder, it's the thought that counts, but he is not lowering the bar. Jesus is raising the bar. When Jesus says it's the thought that counts, he is raising the bar. I think the heart of what Jesus is saying to his followers, to his disciples that day, is look, most any fool can get through life without actually murdering someone. Maybe we shouldn't have a show of hands at this point, but most any fool can get through life without actually murdering someone. But the ethic of the kingdom compels us to actually do the difficult work of loving them. Here's what Jesus is demonstrating here. In relationships, attitude is more significant than action. Attitude is more significant than action. You've heard it said, don't actually kill them. I'm here to tell you the way to live that out in the kingdom is change your heart toward them. It's not good enough to say, well, we made it through without killing anybody. No, Jesus says in the kingdom, we're going to change our hearts because attitude is more significant than action. Church, if you're like me, you're going to be challenged by this. It's not sufficient to merely treat your brothers and sisters in Christ well and avoid killing them if possible. We must actually guard the way we speak to one another and about one another. And we must actually guard the way we think about each other. Jesus is saying the way to fulfill, not abolish, the way to fulfill that simple Old Testament commandment that says thou shalt not kill is to actually have an attitude of kindness, of grace, and of blessing toward other. And here's the reason why. When you encounter somebody who's a part of the kingdom of God, they might not suit your personality. They might look different than you. They might act different than you. They might think differently than you think. They might not be your cup of tea, but they bear the image of God. And they are a component, a part, a building block of the temple of the Holy Spirit. They are part of what the Bible calls a people for his name. And maybe most importantly, remember this, they have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that means they are of immeasurable value. So when we look at somebody like that and we think, what a worthless moron. Or, or when we foster bitterness against them. Or when we call them a good-for-nothing airhead. We are discrediting 
and devaluing the very presence of God, which is the same thing that happens when we actually take another life. So what are we supposed to do about this? Jesus has instructions for people that discover that they're harboring some sort of harmful dynamic in in a relationship. And perhaps, I think surprisingly, Jesus says, hey, don't just pray about it. Right? Isn't that the Sunday school answer that we all learn to give? Like whatever, whatever teacher says, what do we do? The answer is always pray, read your Bible. Like those two answers will work at anything in Sunday school. If, if you're planning to bring your child to vacation Bible school in a couple weeks, you might want to prep them for that. Any question they give, the answer is pray and read your Bible more will be acceptable. Billy, what do you want for snack? Read your Bible more. That'll work. We'll take that at VBS. But that's not what Jesus says. That's not what Jesus says. He says, look, this doesn't start with just, you know, pray about it. Instead, he says this. I'm reading Matthew chapter 5, verse 24 now. He says, leave your gift there in front of the altar. I know you came to pray about it, but stop. Leave your gift in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then, come back and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Can I boil this down to what I think is as as simple a principle as I can make out of it? I believe Jesus is saying that in the kingdom, if you've got a problem with somebody, your first priority should be to go to them. Your first priority should be to go to them. And your objective in doing so should be to settle the matter as quickly as possible. Your first priority is to go to them. And your objective is to settle the matter as quickly as possible. Can I just point out that this is precisely the opposite of the way the world handles disagreements. Jesus says your priority should be to go to them and to settle the matter as quickly as possible. The world says your priority should be to create distance, right? That guy, that guy over there, he doesn't, he, he, he doesn't think the way I think. I have a, a disagreement with him. So what do we do in the world? We create distance, as much distance as possible. I'm not like him. I'm not one of those. I'm sorry, I keep pointing at you, Murphy's and Schwartz's, it's just, or Schwartz. It, it's, it's just the way it is. I'm not like them over there. I create distance. And then once we've got a comfortable amount of distance, what do we do then? We discredit them. That's the world's way of dealing with conflict. Go away from the person you're in conflict with and then discredit them as much as you can. But Jesus says the opposite. He says, no, you're supposed to go toward them and you're supposed to make your priority settling the dispute as quickly as possible. This difference between the ethic of Jesus and the ethic of the world, nowhere is this more apparent and obvious to me than on social media. I don't spend a ton of time on social media. I have a Facebook account, I have a Twitter account, and I do a lot more lurking than I do contributing. <laughs> but sometimes I wonder why I'm even doing that. I mean, I, we've all, it's cliche now to talk about how frustrated we are with social media, but how many of us ha- have, have seen a post on, on, whatever, uh, on whatever your social media of choice is, but uh, somebody's saying, I, I, I don't agree with so-and-so, or if you think such and such, just unfriend me now. We see it all the time. A couple of weeks ago, I think it was on a Sunday, I came home and I'm sitting on the sofa, just scrolling through my Facebook feed. 
And one of my friends posted exactly that. If you're one of these people that think, rah, 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 then just unfriend me now. I lost my mind. I lost my mind. I've read it a hundred times, but for some reason it just really stuck in my craw that day. Oh, come on. And, and, and my wife and my kids had to listen to like a 30-minute sermon from me, impromptu, about how frustrated I was. When people think the answer to division is, unfriend me! Unfriend me! What causes people to think that that's a profitable way of handling our differences? I think that one of the biggest problems in society today is that we've lost the ability to actually listen to one another. When we discover a disagreement in the world, you know what we do? We unfriend and we cancel. We cancel. We just pretend that that person doesn't exist anymore. In the kingdom of God, when you discover a disagreement with a brother or sister, your impulse needs to be the opposite. It needs to be to take action, to get closer to them so that the difference can be examined and dealt with. And if you don't believe me, can I just point this out? Isn't that precisely what Jesus did with us? Isn't the story of salvation that our sin created an offense to God and put separation between us and him? And what was Jesus' response to that? Unfriend them, I'm gonna block them. No, 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 I'm not like, no, that was not what Jesus did. Praise God, the story of salvation is Jesus said, I'm gonna go to them. The word of God says he made his dwelling place among us. After the offense was created, after the separation, after the gulf between us, came into existence, he chose to come to us. Emmanuel, God with us, he made his dwelling place among us and he addressed the problem. The Bible calls it a ministry of reconciliation. Jesus reconciled us unto God by his actions. Some of us are uh, in the church long enough that we're familiar kind of off the top of our heads with, with some of the words and the melodies to the traditional hymns of the church. We don't sing them a ton here at HRCC, so it's okay that if you don't know them, but I wonder how many would remember off the top of their heads, Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Just the first line, if you know it, sing it with me. It says, Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. Maybe you remember that one. Think about that. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. We, are, we understand and we recognize that sin is, in this context, the disagreement between God and humankind, right? Sin is the distance that was between God and humankind. And Jesus' response to the problem of sin wasn't to unfriend the sinners in social media parlance. Jesus became a friend to sinners. He took action to draw close unto the sinners that the issue might be addressed. I think that in the age of social media, we need to, we need to edit the lyrics to that hymn. I think we need to sing, Jesus doesn't unfriend the sinners. Jesus will not just block them all. Maybe we could look into updating those. Here's the process we need to recognize. In relationships, attitude is more significant than action. We already said that, so here's what we're going to do about it. Take swift action to address your attitude. See what we're doing there? 
attitude is more significant than action. So you'd better take swift action to address your attitude. I want to ask you a tough question. Who are the people in the kingdom that you have the most difficulty with? Maybe, maybe it's a particular doctrinal persuasion that just, you know, those folks are rough for us. Maybe it's those, those fundamentalists who take everything so literally. Or maybe it's those progressives who don't really seem to understand the nature of the gospel. Maybe it's, maybe it's a particular political sense that, that you, you struggle with. Christians who sit on the other side of the aisle politically. Maybe it's those heartless conservatives. Or maybe it's those mindless liberals. Maybe it's Christians who uh, partake of a, a particular worship style. Maybe it's, maybe it's those stoic hymn singers who knew all the words to Jesus, what a friend for sinners, and they just worship standing straight like this, and there's obviously no passion whatsoever in any of that. Do they even really know Jesus? Or maybe it's those unnecessarily melodramatic and maudlin contemporary worshipers who just cry at the altar constantly and don't know the first thing about actual theology and doctrine. You know what I'm saying? There's a lot of different camps in the kingdom, and I just, I'm just saying that I know that I know that sometimes some of those camps are just difficult. They're difficult for us. If you're comfortable with allowing that division to just remain, then you're not living according to the ethic of the kingdom of God. It's likely that your concept of kingdom and what that includes simply isn't as big as Jesus's is. And the question before us today as we hear the words of Jesus is, are you going to allow that to be the case? Or are you willing to take swift action to address your attitude? Are you willing to take swift action to address your attitude? A dispute settled now is always better than a dispute settled later. Jesus uses the analogy of a court case. He's saying, look, even you guys know, even even in the courts of, of your society, of your system, it's almost always preferable to reach an agreement outside of court before the judge has the opportunity to issue a ruling that you're probably both gonna hate. In the kingdom of God, we cannot allow ourselves to foster hate-filled or dismissive attitudes towards one another. Thou shalt not kill simply isn't sufficient to govern the kind of heart transformation that is necessary in kingdom living. A deeper obedience is required. So let's put a bow on this. Confession time. Please don't raise your hands because that'll make my job even busier. Who here has ever been angry at someone? Oh, no, come on, that one's too much fun. Let's raise our hands for that one, okay? Who here has ever been angry at someone? Okay, who here has ever been angry at someone this week? Okay, maybe now we need to stop raising our hands because it's getting a little too close to comfort. Who here has been angry at somebody this morning? Um, <laughs> who here has ever looked at that person and said, Raka. Okay, probably no hands on that one. Uh, no Aramaic speakers in the house today? Okay, good, 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 good. Look, I bring that up because I'm deeply aware of the fact that one of the potential negative outcomes 
going to church and hearing the pastor speak, uh, preach a sermon about how we're not supposed to be angry at each other. And it's basically the same thing as murder and you're all going to hell. Like one of the negative outcomes of hearing that sermon is that people walk away and feel guilty about all the times they felt anger toward somebody else. Because y'all just raised your hands. And I, I did first, right? So let's address that. Let's address the guilt that we feel when we hear Jesus say, hey, you're not supposed to get angry. In Mark chapter three, verse five, the gospel records that Jesus looked around at the crowd in the synagogue in anger. On at least two other occasions, we see Jesus forcibly drive vendors out of the temple. In one of those, he made an Indiana Jones whip first. And whoosh, da, ba, da, 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 da. The apostle Paul tells us in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, love is not easily angered. He doesn't say love doesn't get angry. He says love is not easily angered. And in his letter to the Ephesians, he says to them simply, in your anger, do not sin. He doesn't tell them, don't be angry. He says, when you're angry, make sure you're not sinning while you do it. And how about the insults? Because another potential negative outcome here is we get very legalistic about the language we use. Now, I believe the Bible says don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. So a dash of legalism in the way we use our mouths is probably not the worst thing in the world. But we go back and we look at, oh, we're not supposed to say that they are an airhead. Otherwise, I'm going to hell. Right. So what about the insults? Well, here's what's interesting. Jesus was known to call the Pharisees, you blind fools. And do you remember the word? It was the same word. When you see that, he actually yelled at the Pharisees on multiple occasions, you bunch of morons. Wait a minute, Jesus. I thought, I thought you just said we weren't supposed to do that. Jesus, in many of his most famous teaching stories, describes characters and calls them fools. In fact, in just a page or two, in this very same sermon, he's going to tell a very famous story about a wise builder who built his house upon a rock and a foolish builder who built his house upon the sand. And if you go back into the language, he doesn't say wise and foolish. He uses those very same words we looked at on the screen. He says there was a wise builder who built his house upon the rock and there was a moron who built his house on the sand. That's what Jesus says. In literally the very same sermon where he had just a few moments earlier, he said you really shouldn't call anybody a moron. So what are we going to do with that? Like, how, how, do, we, how do we do that? It, it would seem as if maybe there are occasions in the kingdom where it's permissible to be angry. And while I'm not suggesting that we should include the word moron in our daily speech, maybe this thing about how our language is used has a little bit more nuance than we might think. So how do we know if we're being angry the right way? Is there a right way to be angry? And if so, how do we know? For help answering that, let's consider God's own anger. As I read through the Bible, paying attention in particular to the portions that speak about God's anger, three thoughts come to mind, and I want to just quickly share them with you today. Number one, God is angry. God is angry at the enemies to his kingdom. He is angry at the ones who set themselves against his kingdom and seek to destroy it. The Bible makes no bones about that. God is angry 
at the enemies of his kingdom. Number two, God is angry when his own people turn their backs on his word and thereby turn their backs on his kingdom. God is angry when his own people turn their backs on his word and thereby on his kingdom. And number three, God's anger is never impulsive or volatile. In fact, the Bible affirms again and again that God is slow to anger, slow to anger. God does not have a temper tantrum. God does not have a problem just blowing his lid because he said it one more time and I just can't stand you people anymore. That's not God. Yahweh, Yahweh, the God who is slow to anger. That's how the Old Testament describes him. God is angry at the enemies of his kingdom. He's angry when his own people turn their backs on the kingdom. But that anger is never impulsive or volatile. He is slow to anger. I think we need to hear this today in light of everything else that we've heard Jesus say. It's okay. It's okay to feel anger. It's okay to feel anger toward an enemy to God's kingdom. Such a person is not a brother or a sister. Everything that Jesus has said, go back and read through it if you like. Everything that Jesus has said about saying raka and saying, you know, all those other things and being angry, he said to a brother or sister. But it's okay to feel angry towards an enemy to God's kingdom. It's okay to feel angry when somebody is trying to tear his kingdom down. It's okay to feel angry about that. It's okay to recognize the foolishness of somebody who has turned their heart away from God's kingdom. Such person is, is, is not any longer a brother or a sister. Those feelings are okay. I don't see anything in the teaching of Jesus or in the ethic of the kingdom of God that says you're not allowed to feel angry about that. You're not allowed to recognize the foolishness of those kinds of action. But in your anger, do not sin. In your anger, do not sin. Your anger ought to be like God's. It ought to have a very, very long fuse on it. It ought to have a very long fuse on it. It should be measured and purposeful, not reactionary and destructive. And maybe the best advice I can give, and this is, I'm going to do what the Apostle Paul said sometimes. This is me. This isn't, this isn't the word of the Lord. This is just me offering you some friendly advice today. When in doubt, leave the anger to God. Seem like a good idea? When in doubt, leave the anger to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of the Lord today. We thank you for the words, plural, that we hear Jesus Christ say. We've gone through most of our life thinking the idea that, you know, thou shalt not kill is a pretty simple and straightforward one. And in many regards it is. But we hear you today inviting us into a heavenly kingdom that has an ethic that is so much more fully developed than the simplicity of thou shalt not kill. Lord, we hear Jesus say, any fool can get through their life without actually killing someone. 
That is not the low bar to which you have called your people. You have raised the bar, Jesus. You have raised the bar in your kingdom. And so our prayer today is that by the power of your Holy Spirit who renews us and indwells us, you would raise us up as that bar has been raised. That you would be the transformer of our hearts and our minds. Lord, our prayer is that of the psalmist who said, search me and know me, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me. Know my thoughts. Lord, you know my thoughts. You know the part of my heart that wishes to say raka. See if there be any wicked way in me. And Lord, for all of us, we pray that your transforming power and your work in our hearts would be so complete that we would live out this ethic of the kingdom. That our relationships one with another would be marked by grace and kindness and blessing. And I thank you, Lord, today for just the simple practicality of your words that recognized in this fallen world, when broken people encounter broken people, even within the kingdom of God, it's not that we're never going to disagree. It's not that we're never going to offend one another. It's not that we're never going to have difficulty. So God, when those things happen, help us not to divide even more completely, but help us, Lord, to remember that you have called us to a different way. Lord, Help us to deal with division in a manner that strengthens your kingdom. Examine our hearts today, we ask. Fill them with the love of Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the knowledge of the kingdom of heaven. We pray all of these things in the strong and sufficient name of our Savior Jesus. And everybody says... Amen. Amen. Church, I love you. Be blessed. We'll worship together next Sunday morning.